You're listening to Art Affairs, episode number 40. Today I'll be talking to Camille Rose Garcia. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, but the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information for that at patreon.com artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Camille Rose Garcia. Camille has been showing her work in the gallery setting since 1999 and has been a mainstay in the pop surrealist scene ever since. She's been recognized with awards and museum shows, as well as doing several notable projects with Disney fairy tales. I talk with her about her experience growing up in the shadow of Disneyland and her lifelong love of fairy tales as well as her unique ability to weave strong social commentary into very personal works, her new solo show, Obsidian Butterfly, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Camille Rose Garcia. Camille, welcome to the show. I'm so stoked to have you on. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. All right. So I have so much I want to talk to you about. So um, let's let's start with a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, and I know that you were you were born in L.A. and raised in, you know, this kind of the suburbs in the Orange County area uh, to parents who actually met in art school, which I have to say must have been a sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and living in like Orange County, I know that Disneyland was a big part of your childhood. Uh, and I read that you like actually went there every week for like many years like why do you think it was such a big presence in in your life well we uh we were not very far we're maybe about 30 minutes from disneyland but um yeah let me back it up first a little bit uh i was born to um creative parents my dad was a filmmaker my mom was a muralist sign painter and they met in san francisco at um san francisco art institute and they were kind of like, you know, beatnik, arty, <laughs> creative types. So that was always um, that was always kind of there. I grew up around that. Uh, but I was kind of came right out of the box, I guess, like creative and interested in weird things. So um, the early cartoons, the Walt Disney cartoons, but also Warner Brothers. I guess they call it the golden age of mm. of animation. Is what I grew up on. That was all, that was my life. And I was just really enchanted by the idea that these were all little drawn pictures that if you photograph them all, then they, you can bring them to life. 
Um, so I was kind of fortunate to live near Disneyland and um, I was just kind of obsessed with going and they would have a, a, a special for locals if you would, I think it would, I don't remember how much it was, but it was like, you know, $10 or something. If you went after four and you were a local, you could go that often oh, wow. back in the day, back in the, you know, the seventies when I was a kid. Uh, but I just loved that idea that you could walk around in a whole land that somebody kind of thought up from their imagination. That idea was always really enchanting to me. So it kind of came from the love of the that early animation and then being able to walk around, you know, in those movies, you know. Yeah. And didn't you want to become uh, like an animator originally? Wasn't that one of your original kind of what do you want to be when you grow up? I still do. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> I'm still trying to achieve that goal. Um, and again, that uh, that idea of bringing bringing things to life that are just drawn, and then they kind of become imbued with, you know, personality and life. Life, and I don't know. I just I've always um, really enjoyed that, and I think probably my dad being a filmmaker, which is really a storyteller, it comes from that, you know, wanting to tell stories. And that also, I think, is my interest in, in illustrated storybooks, too, which I used to collect as a child. So that whole idea of like, creating worlds full of characters out of your imagination, and then they become, you know, real, a real boy, like <laughs> Pinocchio. <laughs> well, I think it definitely shows. Um, and, and you mentioned your father, and I know your parents got divorced when you were really young, like one years old, which is something you and I kind of have in common. Um, and that your mother raised both you and your sister. But was your father still like having an active role in your life, even though that they were divorced? He was. Yeah. He. Um, yeah. We always had a good relationship, um, and he called all the time, and we would. It wasn't totally joint custody, but we would stay with him maybe like once a month on the weekends. Um, so it was not like a bad broken relationship or anything. I really, I miss my father. He passed away a few years ago, mm. but he was incredibly smart, funny, creative. Um, but yeah, my, I was pretty much raised by a single working mom. Um, and she was my example for all those years of, you know, really being a mom and a dad being the breadwinner as well. Sure. And she was a muralist, like you mentioned, and, and you actually worked with her as young as like 14 um, as an apprentice. So like what kind of murals was she uh, involved in painting? Like what did she do? So she, um, you know, after after she became a single mom, she realized like, oh, OK, I better, you know, I have to kind of get into commercial art a little bit. So she was a sign painter and a muralist and always worked for hire. So we did, um, you know, she did mainly like restaurants uh, or signs for businesses, but we did a lot of like Mexican restaurants, um, Acapulco, Chili's, okay. <laughs> uh, Marie Callender's, like, you know, all these, she had these chain restaurant accounts. So that kind of worked to do that, you know, in the suburbs, there was just tons of that kind of work. But she, um, you know, I grew up around her painting and being a working artist my whole life. And so I really started working with her at a pretty young age, and she was my first art teacher, really. So by the time I got to art school, um, you know, I, I was pretty well versed in, you know, drawing, painting, yeah. color theory, all that stuff, because we were doing it, you know, for work. 
And I think that's also why to this day, I love to paint big and I like, and I'm a pretty fast painter. Um, just from having to do it, having to get up at 6am, load ladders and scaffolds into the car, and then like paint for, I don't know, five hours until the restaurant opened at 11am and, and be done and out of there. So like there was never time to waste. So it kind of created, I guess, a very pragmatic discipline in my practice that, um, that is really necessary to like sustain an art career to, um, you know, to have it be your business and also serve uh, these sort of more esoteric kind of ideas, you know, which is what I'm interested in really. But yeah, like paying the bills too, that was all learned from my mom. <laughs> no, it's amazing that you had that sort of exposure that young. Um, I think that's something that people out of coming out of art school struggle with a little bit is how you monetize your your creative practice, which it seems like you got that very young. Um, was it just murals that she was painting or did she also have a studio practice as well? She had a studio practice. She would um she would sell paintings to to, you know, these restaurants too. So they would like but yeah, they would order up like we need five you know Frida Kahlo-ish fruit watermelon paintings for this restaurant in a week you know so it was just funny she would like go to the um like this canvas tent supply they made like tents for circuses and I don't know but she'd get like this huge roll of camp like she'd never wouldn't go to the art store she'd go to like (laughs) the tent supply store to get canvas and we'd go to like you know uh the paint supply place to get gallons of paint for Amazing. all these jobs. Yeah. And we get like some special paint at the art store, but mainly it was just like, you know, full on production mode. Um, she, she did also do some creative work for herself, but really not until much later after we were older and out of the house because there just wasn't time, you know? Sure. So in, in addition to murals, did you ever get involved in the graffiti scene at all? Because that's sort of an adjacent concern, I guess. And, and I know you were really involved in the punk community, but did you ever kind of get up to graffiti at all? You know what? I did not get involved in graffiti or street art. Um, and I mainly, I think at that time, it was kind of like, uh, I always related that to a more active, like, lifestyle you know like dudes that like to climb water towers and then (laughs) skate and like snowboard and like go flying up a cliff like it seemed more (laughs) of an adrenaline rush thing or like and getting away with a thing at night but like as a woman being out in the middle of the night spray painting in like an aqueduct just never really appealed to me you know what i mean on the other hand, I really recently I did do a large mural um, with the mural festival in Sacramento because, like I said, I do like to do large murals. I think that's really, really exciting and fun, you know. But I never was like, I'm going to go out and like bomb the the freeway <laughs> overpass. Like that was not my style. Um, I was always much more like book reader in the studio, like hermit, um, you know, wizard person with the candle and a record on. No, I can, I can relate for sure. Um, and I know that the suburban areas of LA often, um, and especially Orange County, at least for a while, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if this is, is still the case, but I know that there was a lot of issues with you know, youth, youth substance abuse um, in, in those areas for a lot. And I know that you've talked in the past about that that's something that you had around you a lot growing up, um, and even into college, I guess. Uh, looking back, like what kind of effect do you think 
that had on you and and your development both as an artist and just as a human being in the world, you know? Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked this question because I didn't know if we were going to delve into this, but um, I mean, if you're comfortable, I mean, no, I am, I am. It just, you know, it, it's uh, it. <laughs> I don't know. Trigger warning, maybe. Uh, no, it, in Orange County, California, in the '80s, there were a lot of drugs coming in. I hung out with musicians. I fell into um, hanging out with musicians, and a lot of them. Uh, were addicted to heroin or became quickly addicted to heroin, cocaine, um, what have you. Uh, I don't know why at that time there was so much around other than it may have had to do with, you know, the CIA, the Iran-Contra affair, smuggling mm. drugs, getting drugs into LA. I know CIA and crack, there was a connection with that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is a whole other story, kind of side tangent. But what happened was, you know, my mom was a single mom. She owned her house. Um, there was not a male present at our house. And that kind of left us open and vulnerable to sort of being overtaken by a rogue punk drug music scene. <laughs> so my boyfriend was in a band. He played guitar and um, his parents were older and they were moving away. So he asked if he could move in. And my mom was like, yeah, sure. Because she, she, you know, she was just like, she was a mom. She was like, yeah, anyone that needs help, of course, they'll come in. And she and no one had any idea to the extent of what that one decision, what would happen. But she traveled a lot for work. Uh, so in our teen years, basically, the band started practicing in the garage and then the buddies came and then their girlfriends came and then people never left. Oh, so wow. it was like um, one of those houses where there's just constantly drugs coming in and out and people coming in and out. And before we knew it, like everything of value had been stolen from the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, and you know, being a teenager, I did not, you know, you just kind of adjust to a new a new normal, right? You just kind of adjust to like what's happening around you. So it didn't really strike me as um as dangerous as it probably was. That being said, a lot of the um musicians and um around they were older and they knew that they were junkies. And they told me, don't ever start any of this. We're total losers. Like, this is hell. You don't want any part of this. And I believe them because I saw people, you know, people think of drug addiction in this romantic way, like drugs and music and Keith Richards and creative. But, you know, drug addicts are some of the hardest working criminals I have known in terms of like, they have to go wake up every day, make a bunch of phone calls, steal a bunch of shit and then sell it or, you know, unless they have like a trust fund. Um, so, you know, basically I saw what I saw was an entire community of creative people that had potential that could have had lives be utterly destroyed by the influx of heroin, cocaine, crack, um, 
alcohol, you know, everything and utterly destroyed. So this was my teen years in high school. Um, I was a straight A student, but by my senior year, just out of, I don't know, just sheer despondency. I mean, I almost failed out just because I didn't realize the extent of, um, of that on, on my life, you know, but people would be up all night making noise. I'd have to go out in like 3am and say, could you guys please shut up because I need to wake up and go to school in the morning. Meanwhile, my mom would be like traveling for a couple weeks trying to, you know, basically make money to, to make the mortgage and support us. Um, so she would come back and find her house overtaken, you know, by people and all the food gone. So she had kind of a mental breakdown at some point, like when I was maybe 17 and she just stopped buying food oh, wow. because everyone would, would eat it. And, you know, she would give us some money for food, but she's like, I'm not, I'm not buying food anymore. So at that point, that's kind of when I was like, oh shit, like I didn't have a job. I mean, I worked with her sometimes, but I started drawing album covers for people for like 20 bucks here, there I would draw like their favorite rock star. And, uh, that was kind of my first art hustle because, you know, it was sort of the reality of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I better, you know, like I have to pull some weight here too, because my mom is kind of losing it here. She yeah. can't handle what's happening. So by the time I was, um, I played to art college and I got in and, and I left and I got out and it was funny getting to art college because I was completely sober. I was so thankful to be there. And all of these kids that came from these families that where they had a mom and a dad and normal households, it was their first time trying crack or cocaine or heroin or psychedelics or any of those. So that I, I came in the situation where I finally felt safe and I saw all these, a uh, whole new oh. crop of young people getting ruined all over again, oh, you know? Man. Yeah. So it's almost like that experience kind of hardened you to it. So you didn't fall victim to some of the things that the people around you were suddenly being exposed to and falling victim to. Yeah. I knew the reality of addiction and it was not glamorous or pretty where these, these kids had never seen really, what drug addiction looks like. And, um, so they didn't, they didn't know. I had a best friend at the time and, you know, he was struggling with coming out and being gay and, and, um, you know, was starting to kind of get into heroin. And I just, I told, I was like, you can't do this. It will ruin your life. And, you know, no one ever listens to you. You can't really <laughs> tell people what to do. Yeah. And this is, uh, this was a uh, Otis that you went to, right? The uh, art school. Yeah, so I went to Otis Parsons at the in Los Angeles, and at the time it was right by right across the street from MacArthur Park, which was a really terrible area. It had been beautiful in you know the 30s and 40s, but um, it had fallen into disrepair that area, and so you could basically walk across the street and get any kind of drug you wanted in the park from the El Salvadorian gangs. Um, oh, wow. So it was a pretty dangerous area. I wouldn't go out after dark because, again, there was a lot of gang turf warfare in the area. And then I don't know even if you read this part, but um, uh, the day of our graduation after four years. That was the riots, right? The LA riots broke yeah, out. Yeah, I did hear about <laughs> so, that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so then it was all canceled. Our graduation was canceled. And that moment when you're supposed to like – get discovered by a gallery because they all come to the senior show and see what you've been working on. And 
all that was canceled and we were just thrust out into the world, you know. <laughs> do you think that your your experience at Otis was a, a fulfilling one? Like, do you think it was a necessary component for, you know, your development as an artist? Yeah, no, this is a controversial question because um, I'm not a big proponent of art schools now because of the cost. So back then, I got there weren't that many art schools around. There was CalArts, there was Otis Parsons, and there was Art Center. And so it was highly competitive. They would take students based on ability, and then you, you could get scholarships, you could get loans. But the total amount after four years that I was that I had any debt for was about $10,000. And that was like a reasonable amount that I could pay off. Now, I mean, I think four years of art school at certain places could run you a hundred grand. And I would not recommend that to anyone because, again, that will ruin your life. And the main thing you need as a creative person is time and cheap rent, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the two main components. But at the time, you know, I got a full scholarship. Um, It was the best thing I could have ever done because it got me out of that home situation that was going nowhere. I worked really hard because I was so grateful to have that full ride. Um, and that's why I was sober that whole time. So I didn't want, I didn't want to miss any of it. I had incredible teachers, really a big, a big, uh, emphasis on life drawing. So we would do, um, the classes were like four, six hours long and in which you'd, you know, be drawing from, from the figure the whole time. And that was, you know, 40 hours a week, then plus. So I'd be drawing like, you know, probably like 80 hours a week of doing art. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty intense. And, um, uh, it was, I, I think it was very, very valuable and I really liked the experience. Very cool. So you got your BFA there in 92 and then it seems like you went right into grad school at UC Davis, (laughs) like no, no delay at all. Just right into your MFA program. I guess what motivated you to just go straight into that? Well, the motivation was, fuck, I can't pay back these student loans yet, which is <laughs> most people's motivations from going directly from undergrad into grad school because you get to defer mm-hmm. the loans. So a lot of these choices are just from being pragmatic choices, you know, because um, the one thing no one ever teaches you in art school is how to make a living. That's right. like the one thing they leave out. <laughs> yeah. So, but at the time, um, there was there was a small window of a few years in which they were doing affirmative action, and uh, my dad at the time was a, a film professor, so he was like, "No, you got to write the essay. Like, you're from a broken family and raised by a single mom, and you have no money." And I was like, "I don't want to write all that. That sounds pathetic." <laughs> And he's like, no, just write it. And I felt really, and even though it was true, I didn't view myself that way, you know. Right, right. Um, I didn't view myself as struggling, although, again, I had zero dollars to go to grad school. Mm. So I wrote the the entrance essay, and because of affirmative action and being Hispanic female from a broken family, you know, I was able to get in full ride to UC Davis. Um, and again, uh, this is a good story was that, you know, the riots broke out on graduation day. And, you know, my apartment was just a few blocks from Otis Parsons. And that area was completely had turned into anarchy. There was, there was um, a, a 
there was an accident in the middle of the intersection, a major intersection on 6th and Rampart, and the cars stayed in the intersection for three days. Oh, wow. There were no police in all of Los Angeles for three days. So during this time, I was like, well, I'm getting the fuck out of here. So I, pa- <laughs> I was packing my stuff because I was like, I can't live in this area. You know, this is nuts. And during that time, I got the letter from UC Davis that I got accepted full ride to grad school. So I was like, I'm, well, I'm going there right now then. So I just like, you know, it was summer and I was like, I'll just, I'll just get a job and wait for grad school to start, you know? So that was amazing. That's very cool. So you got your MFA in 94. um, And then after wrapping that up, you, you ended up going back to, to Southern California. Um, And from what I read, you you were sort of, it seemed like you were burned out because you were kind of, you took a break. You ended up stop producing art for you know a couple of years yeah um uh, what was the reason for that was it just the burnout from just too much all at once you know again it was a pragmatic choice um it, there was a bit of burnout after grad school because it was an era i don't know how it is now but uh there was a big emphasis on critical theory and conceptual work so we did mainly talking about artwork and dissecting and tearing apart artwork and it sort of pulled all the luster and the magic and the fun out of making artwork. Um, And again, you know, after you leave art school, there's, you know, okay, here's what you're supposed to do to get into galleries. You make all these slides and you send them out and you do all the stuff. Well, I did all that and nothing happened. So, uh, it, I was just in a real kind of conundrum of like, well, I, okay, what's the next step? Because I realized I didn't have a lot of other practical skills other than like painting and imagineering all day long. Um, so I moved, I, I, and I was broke again <laughs> because, you know, in school you're not earning any money and I didn't have a job once that was over. So I moved back in with my mom in Orange County where I hated going back to because I hated, I hate the suburbs still to this day. Um, and, uh, and she was like, no, I have, I have some work. Um, I have some jobs coming up so you can come and work with me. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. Um, so I got down there and I don't know what the situation was, but somehow the job, the jobs dried up or that, you know, something happened where my mom actually, after years of working as a working professional artist had to start driving a taxi for like oh, wow. a couple years. Yeah. And driving a taxi, taking a lot of tourists to and from Disneyland, wow. <laughs> which is sort That's of like crazy. a weird roundabout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she was broke and I was like, oh my God, okay, I can't work for her. I, what can I even do? What do I even know how to do? And, you know, maybe I had like 60 bucks to my name. So um, I started working at this coffee house and there I met these other four women and we... Um, they all played music and I, I'd played bass since high school and they were like, yeah, you want to be in a band? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. I want to be in a band. That sounds like fun because up till this part, after leaving art, six years of art school and I had done everything I was supposed to do, I got excellent grades, you know, I won awards in art school, but I had no prospects of galleries or make, making any art. I had no money to make any art. I had no time, you know, and I was like, yeah, I want to be in a punk band. Let's do that. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of the next step. I just sort of abandoned art for a while because it, it just didn't, I just didn't see any point to it, you know? 
Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, the the fact that you were kind of looking for ways to have like lucrative income, it's like let's start a punk band. Like, <laughs> seems like just that's a very interesting kind of right turn. Um, and that was the, the band was called the Real Minks, right? I, I want to get that yeah. out there. So, and you did that for a couple of years. Um, and, yeah. and I know that you were really into to punk music growing up. You know, uh, bands like the Dead Kennedys, the Clash had a big an impact on you. Um, I guess what was it about punk music that that resonated with you so much? So I think the main thing that still resonates with me to this day is through punk music, people were able to express a frustration with the current society and an anger and a vitality while also being very true to their own spirit and their roots. Um, and I'm not saying every punk band was a commercial success, but I think they were able to make a living and they were able to make albums. And I, and a lot of, especially the clash and the dead Kennedys, they had a lot to say that maybe were things that were said, um, in the sixties, maybe by the poets, the beat poets and, and the musicians of that, uh, like Bob Dylan, I feel like in the seventies, it took the punk rock movement kind of took that over in terms of social commentary. Mm. Um, and I always admired that you could, you could put such meaningful social commentary into work that was also so fun and exciting to be a part of. So I always kind of took that as my ethos in making artwork. So that's why I always kind of liked the idea of like zines and comic books, reaching a mass audience that people could buy for like five or $10. You know, you could buy a punk album for, for 10 bucks and have it for years and have it be so meaningful to you where the art world and galleries and, you know, museums that always seemed a little bit um, harder for like a normal person to access or understand what was going on. Um, And in grad school, I was kind of told that everything that I liked, which was kind of like from the underground, from zines, comic books, punk rock, that those things weren't really part of an art practice or that conversation and, and were kind of poo pooed as, um, you know, base or I don't know, just, I was definitely given the impression that that was not art. Well, you showed them for sure. <laughs> yeah, I showed them. They can really suck it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that lasted, um, you know, your time with the real minks, uh, lasted for a couple of years. And then around 96 is when you really got, kind of got started, uh, you know, excited about making art again. So how did that happen? What reignited your passion for, for making art? So, uh, I moved back to LA. I got a job there, uh, doing graphic design and, um, uh, actually worked for Hustler magazine, which a lot of creative people, worked there. But the cool, the cool thing about that magazine is they hired, they paid a lot for illustrations. So they hired really cool illustrators. So I saw like the Clayton brothers and George ND. I mean, none of them would admit that they did work for, <laughs> for a skin magazine now, but they hired really good people. So there was a lot of artwork I was starting to see in LA that I was like, Oh, well, these are exciting paintings. Like I saw Mark Ryden's work for the first time. And it kind of, like that style of work reminded me that there was a way to in, to make paintings fun, maybe narrative perhaps, but um, there was a way that I could take what I loved about punk rock music and try to put it into paintings. 
And so what I've always tried to do was to make work that has a social commentary, um, but that is also really fun to look at or participate in, you know? Yeah, the same way The Clash or The Dead Kennedys was for me. Sure. That's awesome. And so once you kind of got back into making art, how did you start getting your work in front of galleries and start making some of those you know, connections? Yeah. So uh, it kind of started like um, I would do illustrations for this um, weekly magazine called The New Times. And they were just like little black and white illustrations. But that kind of led to doing like a sticker and poster campaign for this pirate radio station that was in Silver Lake, uh, an area of L.A. at the time. And that was called KBLT. And uh, so I did these stickers. And before I knew it, I would drive around and I saw these stickers on everyone's car, my sticker, because everyone cool listened to the pirate radio station, KBLT. And they would have all these, um, you know, DJs that, that would play their, their sets, all these different DJs. And it was all like the coolest people in L.A. that um, I didn't know them. But then I kind of got to know them through that way. Uh so that kind of got me into drawing again and illustration and I quit doing graphic design. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this, like coming back to my roots, you know? Um, so uh, at the time uh, there were a couple galleries, the Luz de Jesus, Mary Karnowski gallery was just opening and I would send her stuff all the time, little flyers and things. Um, and there is started to be some avenues where you could kind of like, you know, Oh, well maybe that would work. You know, maybe I'll try that out. So I think the first the first group show was at was at Billy's was at Lulu's. I had a piece in a group show there, and then there was this other little gallery in Echo Park called um, Delirium Tremens, and they gave me a solo show. It was a little space, but it was fine. It was like, oh, this is so. It was fun because it was like the punk underground music scene kind of meets LA underground art scene, which we were sort of inventing, you know. Mm. Uh, so that is kind of how it started. And then Mary Karnowski actually, like, I don't know if she emailed or called me because, yeah, I think email was like brand new. Um, and uh, we got in touch and she gave me, uh, I had a two person show with her. And um, it was so exciting because she had like a really beautiful little space. And, you know, it felt like a, it was like, a, okay, this is like a, my shot, you know? Um, but it was funny, the day of the opening, I uh, I wanted to buy something, you know, kind of nice to wear. And uh, so, and you know, by nice, I mean, like, I went to Ross and got, like, a new dress or something. And I realized I was overdrawn by $60 in my oh, account. Wow. Yeah. And then I got to the opening, and every single piece I made had sold. Nice. So it was, like, a real, one of those, like, contrast moments. And then it was like, it was on from then. It was like, okay, I can, let's do this, you know? Um, but the funny, I guess I didn't mention this before, but, um, you know, for years after grad school, I was applying to galleries and trying to, and no response, nothing. And finally, when I started to just make work, I, I, I just, in my head, I was like, you know, I just want to make work for me that I like, that I will want to hang up in my house because I know that I know how to paint and I know what I like. So I'm going to make that. And then that's when everyone else started liking the work as well. Very cool. Yeah. It's awesome. And, and you mentioned Mary Karnowski because you've, you've done several shows with her, including the the show that um, you got coming up, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I, I guess 
uh, is having a strong gallery relationship like that important to you? And do you think it's necessary as an artist in 2021? I, um, it is very important to me now. And I don't think I realized how much um, until after I left her gallery and worked with some other galleries that didn't work out for various reasons, not always like the fault of the gallery. Sometimes, you know, like I was at Michael Cohn for a while and that was exciting because I was like, oh, I'm stepping up. And he showed me in, in the Real Art Basel Fair and my painting was hanging next to an Andy Warhol, oh, wow. you know. No, that was a big moment. But his collector base didn't really, they didn't really buy my work. They weren't really responding to the work. So my sales there were were practically non-existent. So I mm. kind of had to leave that gallery for, um, uh, not non-existent. I don't want to say that, like the shows I did with him sold fine, but it wasn't like suddenly I was in art auctions or suddenly in the Venice Biennale, like the, the other art world, the hot, you know, the, the high art world or whatever we want to call that one, the art form art world, they don't really like my work and they never have. And I've never been led into that kingdom. So, um, so for me, realizing like, oh, okay, you know, after a number of years working with other galleries, like it is important to have that, um, to have someone kind of doing all that work on the other side for you in terms of representing your work as important culturally and historically and letting museum, you know, telling museums and, you know, making all that stuff happen, um, now, this was all kind of before Instagram and social media. So I think a lot of younger artists now, they, they, they can sell direct, they can promote themselves, they can reach their own clients. Um, so that is all possible as well. But it's also a lot more work. Um, it's also a lot more work. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, you can have a gallery and give them 50% and then be left alone and be able to paint, or you can yeah. do all that other work yourself and deal, deal with clients and sell and ship and everything and maybe paint a lot less. So now it's nice that people have options, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so after that, that, that first show with Mary in, in 99, um, it seemed like, at least according to your CV, that it was like a decade straight of just solo show after show. I mean, like every year you had a new solo show, which is an enormous, like that's a huge, I guess, amount of work that you're doing all, all in that period of time. Did that take a toll on you? Like, how did you manage that pace? I was young. <laughs> <laughs> I was young. I could do it. And I was doing it full time. I didn't have another job. I, well, I would do illustration work for hire, um, but I didn't have to like go to a day job or or teach, which I know a lot of people do. And teaching is very hard. It's very, I've done it sporadically and it, it takes a lot of um, mental energy to for me to interact with a lot of people on a daily basis i think it took me like you know 40 years to realize oh i'm a hermit and i don't need any interaction with people like generally that's that's okay by me like i um i get a lot more work done but yeah i had a solo show every year during those 10 years and they all sold out and it was like the golden age of lowbrow art because it was happening um, social media was starting out, you know, like there was an entirely new collector base that had not existed before. Um, and they kept me going. You know, it's like, okay, well, they're, yeah, cool. I can make another show now. And it was always like, well, if I, you know, if I sell the work, I can make another show. Uh, 
So yeah, it was kind of like a just a blur of like just constantly painting during that time and making a lot of work. And I should probably count at some point how many pieces I've made um, because I think, you know, over time in my life, I may be one of the most prolific female artists to have ever lived. Definitely. If I live to like 90. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we were talking earlier about the kind of very early exposure that you had to the business side of art with your mother and how you had to kind of train yourself to really be quick and fast and produce a lot of work in a short period of time. So do you think that influenced that mindset that you had in those early years? Yes, for sure. Like, um, so the production style, like of my mom getting the cannabis at the, uh, you know, at the tent supply place in like a hundred yard roll, that d- did stick with me because I work I work the same way now in which, you know, I go to, I work on wood panel. Um, so, you know, me and my husband, we go to Home Depot, we get all the stuff, we build all the panels and I, I start painting on all of them all at once. So I have like, like right now for this show, I have like 13 fairly large paintings all spread out and I rotate through them. I do them all at once. So I've never worked on like one piece at a time on an easel. Like that's just not how I do it. Um, And that kind of keeps me moving. So if I get stuck on one thing, there's always something to do on the other thing. I've never really had the luxury of getting artistically stuck you know what I mean sure yeah and there's also kind of a, a a pragmatic uh idea again of like making <laughs> it's the silliest thing really to try to sell artwork for a living like it's the dumbest idea <laughs> and I don't recommend it it will make you <laughs> insane um because you have to balance you know like and I don't like to think about this, but like, okay, what do, what do people want? What will they buy? Like, I hate thinking about that, but galleries think about that. And that's the reason I usually make small work, not necessarily because that's my favorite kind of work to make, but because you do need to have, you do need to try to have some sales after the show because a solo show in a major gallery space, you know, it can take, I can do it in a year. Two years is ideal. I never have the luxury of two years usually because you have to self-finance two years of working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week straight while paying all your bills and then hoping at the end of this opening, this month that you get to show the work, that there's a paycheck after that. Mm -hmm. And that is not guaranteed. So it's a maddening process you know, that I wish I didn't have to think about balancing, like the having a a business of making art versus the pure pursuit of, of the intangible, spiritual nature of creativity, which is really what I'm after. But that does not care about money or time. No, no, no. <laughs> at all. Not at all. No. So, I mean, in in that first decade where you're really kind of turning along, um, you were also doing some commercial projects as well. Um, and uh, it's funny you're you're among a handful of artists who whose work I was exposed to in completely different contexts, well before I even got involved in the art community. 
Um, and so like James Jean and Joe Aruaz is through the Fables comic covers, Esau with the House of Mystery comic covers. And then I get you know exposed to them much later. And for you, it was the 2003 cover for Ogre's Sunny Psyop album. Oh, cool. Oh, that's <laughs> I, awesome. I, so I saw it in this completely different context and then was exposed to you many years later, you know, 10 years later or whatever, when I start really getting involved in the art community. So I'm curious about that project. And for those that are, are unaware, um, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of industrial music, so Skinny Puppy is a big, you know, kind of mainstay in the industrial music scene. And Ogre was a kind of side project by one of the members of Skinny Puppy, and you did their the cover for the sophomore album, Sunny Psyop. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, how did that project come about? Did, did you know those guys, or was it through like an agency, or what, what was? No, the... I have met. Uh, first of all, I love I love music so much. I'm a passionate music fan, and I love doing artwork for musicians, for music I love. It's like one of my favorite things. I don't care if there's no money involved, like I'll do it anyway. So I've done stuff, yeah, for Skinny Puppy. I've done work for for um, the Melvins and Dead Kennedys. I don't know if you've seen that cover. I've yeah, done yeah. Uh, I've done stuff for Tool recently. Um, so Ogre, uh, oh, and uh, yeah, AFI and stuff with, for Davy Havoc, and they would come to the gallery as art fans. Like Davy Havoc actually bought a couple pieces of art, and that's how I met him. And Ogre, he may have bought a small piece early on, and that's how I met him. And you know, and I'd be star starstruck and they'd be starstruck. But so if they're like, yeah, I have a new album coming. Would you want it? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> I would love to do that for you, you know, um, because I, and again, you know, this kind of contrast between the higher world and lowbrow. What I like about the lowbrow world is that the work that you make that might either, like you're saying, on a record cover or in a in a graphic novel or or a zine or something are things that normal people will buy and live with and look at for, you know, do you might have, you might still have that CD, you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's in the room. Yeah, we're like, you're not going to go seek down a copy of art form to like read the review of the show that happened 20 years ago. You know what I mean? Like nobody cares. Right. So um, I love that it has an endurance through those kind that printed media medium stuff. Um, I met Nia Rausch. I don't know if you know him. No, he's no. a very very famous German artist, great great painter, and he uh, he was showing at Michael Cohn, you know, Art Basel Fair. Like the whole Eli Broad Museum has an entire top floor of, of Nia Rausch paintings. Like he's a big deal, right? Million dollar paintings. And he saw one of my paintings at Michael Cohn Gallery, and he was like, oh, I know this artist. I have the cover. I think either the Sunny Psyop, that, or or the Melvins or something. But he saw my work on, like, the cover of a music thing, you know? It's just so funny. It's, it's a powerful venue. I mean, the fact that it can reach the unaccustomed, you know, like you said, um, I think that's a powerful thing. And, and once yeah. people, if they do end up finding your work later, it's like a whole different experience because they see it in this new context, which I, I really enjoy. Yeah, I, I enjoy that, too. I like, I like kind of mixing it up, you know. Yeah, yeah. So some of the other notable kind of commercial projects um, that I wanted to talk to you about were the, the Disney related works that you did with HarperCollins. Um, the first one of those was in 2010, uh, the illustrated Alice in Wonderland. So how did that, that pro- and you, you did, did several of them later, Snow White and Cinderella. So how did that first come about? How did that project come to you? So that was one where uh, there was an editor at HarperCollins that contacted me specifically to do Alice in Wonderland. 
Um, and my first reaction was no, like there's no way to improve on that original. I'm like, I'm not crazy. Why would I do that? Uh, but you know, again, with illustration work, especially illustrated books, um, the money is good and they send you, they will send you an advance check and, you know, then you get a check when you're done and then hopefully royalties. So, um, it's a much more consistent, you know, rather than like gallery shows where you're like, well, hopefully this hits some chord and someone <laughs> will spend some money on this. Like you don't know, but illustration work, there's a contract, there's a deadline, there's, you know, there's an advance. So, you know, again, it's like, okay, I can't say no to this because this is probably a good, this will probably be a good project. Um, and I'll try to squeeze it in. Yeah. That's the problem is like, I knew it was going to take a long time and you know, HarperCollins is a major publisher, so they set the parameters of, uh, of um, you know, this is when we need it, this is how many we need. So kind of with mixed emotions, I, you know, I signed the contract and I didn't know what I was getting into. But uh, basically, I did about 100 illustrations for them, I feel like in a three-month window. Oh, wow. Because... It might have been four months. Not No, it's probably three months if I go back and look. So how they work is you have to send them all the um, the sketches, and then they approve and make changes on the sketches, and then you do all the, the color work, right? So the time between when they approve the sketches and when the color work is due, and, you know, if it was a book of like 10 illustrations, that's like, okay – and, but I don't know if they have the same contract if the book has 10 illustrations or if it has 100 illustrations. They probably, the lawyers don't look at that. But for me, it's like, oh, okay, so between the time they approve the sketches and I get to start the final work is six weeks. Oh, wow. For 100? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. For 100. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. I know. I know. So this is, again, where I was glad to learn this sort of production style from my mom where I, and I had, this was the first time I used watercolors, you know, strictly for a speed kind of issue of like, I need something that's instantly dry, that then I can go back and work over again in like two minutes. You know, you got the hair dryer out, like it's a, <laughs> a thing. And also it's uh, the other part of it was I had, then I had to send them digital files. So I would have to scan all the stuff and send them the digital file. So I couldn't paint anything too big because then I'd be like piecing it on the scanner. I mean, stupid, like stupid issues where, you know, with a hundred illustrations, you say, well, Camille, you could go have someone else scan those. But yeah, well, if you try to have something scanned at 400, you know, like, sorry, it's early. My brain is like freaking out over this, but it would be like 50 bucks a scan. It would yeah. cost me like thousands of dollars to have done. So I was like, okay, they have to be small to fit on the scanner. So I'll have to do watercolor. I'll have to work really teeny. Um, but I would lay out like, you know, there would be like a, 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 I don't know, like one for each chapter. So like 24 for each and then little spot illustrations, but I would lay out all the paper on a big table and I would mix up again, like a gallon of like watercolor. Like it's not some pretty little like, oh, I'm just dipping the little brush into the little <laughs> thing. No, it's like just pour the gallon of like Hansa yellow for all the background color. So yeah, that was the process. Um, and it, yeah, 
by the end, I had a serious eye tick that would happen every time I'd sit down. Oh, and uh, so if you look, and I'm always saying, like, don't look too closely at those illustrations because you can tell, like, I'm losing my mind at the end. <laughs> but th- you did, like, two more of them. So you yes. didn't, le- you didn't learn yes. your lesson clearly. <laughs> I did. I did learn, but I needed the money. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And so, you know, how much research did you do kind of going into those books uh, as far as how you wanted to present the visuals? Oh yeah, so that so the part of other than the the horror of making the book was um was that I loved making the book, you know. Uh I researched a ton of Alice in Wonderland stuff, like just seeing how everyone else approached it. Um but I always came back to, you know, the illustrations that stick the most are the the Tenniel illustrations, the original ones. They're the ones I grew up on. They're the, you know, they're the ones you think of, right? So I Kind of, and I, I realized, you know, being an artist and looking at the compositions of the work, um, really how he would come up with the best composition for that part of the story, you know, because there's, there's a number of ways you can compose something for a book, but, you know, there's pretty, I, I noticed I would arrive at the same kind of um, way that he would for something, you know, and I didn't know if it was because I had always seen it done that way, you know. Uh, so I kind of viewed it as like an homage to the Tenniel illustrations, except in color and a little more psychedelic. So if you look, if you compare side by side, a lot of them to the Tenniel work, you can see kind of a direct relationship to his. Yeah. And one of the only illustrations he didn't do was the lobster quadrille, which Mm. was this weird dance. (laughs) It's like a song. Oh God. I didn't even know. But it's like a dance where they are dancing with lobsters on the shore and then they fling the lobsters into the sea and then the lobsters swim back and they do it all over again. And I could find no record of of an of this illustrated and it was so fun because I thought, okay, I can so this one I can really like do whatever I want. So. That's awesome. That's very yeah. cool. I, I think these projects are interesting. Um pretty much all three of them. Um just because um you know, on the one side, we talked about earlier how big of an influence the the Disneyland and just these properties specifically have had on you and been, you know, your lifelong love of fairy tales. But then on the other hand, a lot of your work, and you even talked about this earlier, has been critical of capitalism and the harms of rampant consumerism, which Disney is, is, is a big part of right now, you know. So how do you reconcile, I guess, that those different pers- kind of competing perspectives? Well, Walt Disney is the person I admire. Walt, Walter and Roy, and they were people, you know, Walter was an artist. Yeah. Um, he was, he wanted to make all this magical stuff, not to make money, but to have it exist in the world and to tell these stories, you know, Roy was the numbers guy and he'd be like, Walter, we're, you know, you're making us bankrupt again with this Disneyland <laughs> project that's going to fail. You know what I mean? Like, no, Snow White, I think, almost bankrupted them because they it was so expensive to make a full-length feature animated film. And it's so perfectly done. I mean, that movie. So when I talk about Disney, I'm not talking about the Disney Corporation. That's a different thing. And that really existed after he died. Um, during the time he was alive and making films and, and making the theme parks, um, Money was not his aim. You know what I mean? That was not his goal. He had to make money enough to keep it all running. Um, but I can guarantee you that was not the first thought in his head when he was making those, you know? 
So that when I talk about Disney, that's what I'm talking about. Capitalism has a way of taking everything magical in the world and turning it into landfill, into dead things. And that's my problem with capitalism is that it treats everything as a resource, whether it's people, a land base, animals, or the creative capital of humans. Yeah, no, no, I think that that definitely resonates, um, especially now. I mean, it's, it could, it's yeah, especially now. late stage capitalism, you know. Yeah, um, it's not going to be pretty. And so, you know, a lot of your early kind of 2000s work um, had that really strong kind of anti-capitalism um, kind of approach. Very, you know, a lot of these social uh, socio-political issues, um, I guess, what is the origin of that um I guess that focus for you, is it the, the early kind of exposure to punk music and the activism of your father? Like what was the origin? Has that been your ethos for like your whole life or is it something you kind of came to later? You know, it's exactly the, the first two things. Um, the ethos of my father who had made, um, he had made a documentary uh, about the Chicano, um, the Chicano rights movement in Los Angeles that was happening in the seventies and the, um, the death of the, um, Chicano reporter Ruben Salazar and he won an award for that film and that was kind of his political activism you know sort of fell off the map map after that because he started having to work you know in a real job in Hollywood and making like a movie of the week thing but it was that and then um you know punk rock music but I think the ethos when I really trace it back it it really I think goes to my grandma, my mom's mom, Grandma Millicent. Um, she was such a proponent of um, helping people, helping the poor, uh, people's rights. No, she was an original, like, no-nukes person. That They were back to the landers. They homesteaded land up here where I live now in the forest. They were um, just very conscientious, I think, of of living in a way where you know, what does your life stand for? What do you, what do you, what do you stand for? What do you represent? And is it, you know, is it for the good of humanity? Is it for the good of the land of people? I don't know. Uh, I think that whether I realize it or not, that's just part of our whole family, like that, that ethos. Um, That being said, um, I wanted to see like, you know, there was always political art, you know, but it was always kind of done in a way where maybe, so here's a good example of like, um, the German expressionists during World War II, a lot of them were put in, put in camps or, or they had to leave the country because they were making work against the war against, you know, Hitler and their lives were in danger because of the work they would make. Um, Otto Dix was one of my favorite of that time. And he, he did a lot of work of like, you know, the soldiers after that had, um, you know, injuries and amputations. So they were sort of like really horrific to look at, but really beautiful in, in the ethos of trying to communicate a compassion for his fellow man and to point out the injustice of what was happening. So I guess like the ethos of like, really trying to understand for me, what does it mean to make art? What is it for? And who does it serve? And those are always the questions, right? For sure. Yeah. 
Well, and I think it's interesting because like, yeah, it seemed like midway through, uh, I, I like, I really like your approach just because, um, you know, around midway through your career, it seems like you, you started to make the social commentary, which is still always present, but you seem to make it more subtle and kind of weave it into more personal kind of stories about spiritualization and feminine archetypes and some other kind of very kind of personal themes that you, that you felt important about, but still kind of weave that social commentary into it, which makes it very layered and kind of allows it to be different things to different people in a lot of ways. I guess, was that a very kind of intentional shift for you to kind of pull that back a little bit and put it into the the foundation um, rather than it being like upfront and kind of in your face? Or was it sort of an organic evolution that just sort of happened over time? Well, it's a couple things. One was I, I moved in 2007 from Los Angeles to where I live now, which is uh, in the woods of Northern California. And I actually live in the Six Rivers National Forest. I live in a town that's um, been grandfathered in. So it's like a town of 400 where we get to live in the forest. But this area is where I spent all my summers um, as a child because my my grandparents had homesteaded up here and my grandpa built a cabin. So we would come every summer and stay. Um, So the world up here that I lived in during my childhood summers was, you know, I would collect insects and draw them and swim in the river. And, you know, it was a very pure nature environment, you know, and then go, <clears throat> then I go back to the suburbs and it's like the drug addicts and the heroin and everything's stolen. And, you know, just like <clears throat> this contracts of dysfunctional within a planned utopia of suburbs versus the complete effortless functionality happening in an intact ecosystem. Like what, what's the problem here? Humans, what, why can't we figure this out? <laughs> so I kind of wanted to live, I was like, you know, I would love to live full time in an environment like that. So we got the opportunity in 2007, moved up here and the work started to shift. And what happened was, Instead of pointing out everything wrong with capitalism, with society, um, I started, that became like the subtext and I started to focus on, okay, well, what is right and beautiful in the world? What am I trying to tell people that we're, that we should be saving and paying attention to, you know? So that's when like the butterflies and the flowers started coming in and the, the colors got really keyed up into the sort of bright different palette completely. Um, and I didn't, I haven't used, and this is, this is like a painterly, some painterly stuff I'm going to be talking about, but, um, I have not used an earth tone since I left LA. Mm. And by earth tone, I mean, like, you know, there's like this color raw sienna that you could, you could put a wash over painting and make it look kind of smoggy and dirty, you know, and I used to use a lot of raw sienna in the early days. And then once I got up here, it's like, well, that green of that tree is like, it's so green. Like, how do I get that green? Like, I became more focused on trying to get these very vibrant colors that I was seeing in like an insect or in a flower or like the mushroom season up here is off the hook. Like I've seen electric blue fungus, like bright fluorescent green lichen, like all this crazy stuff. Um, but, but the way I make those colors and the way I paint is by um, these sort of thin glazes of colors overlapping each other, right? So to make, um, you know, 
if you look at the color brown in earth, it's not brown. It's like, well, that piece is red and that piece is white and that piece is purple. If I look at the sky, it's not blue. It's like, well, it's there's a little bit of red in there, but there's also a little bit of um, blue in there and there's purple, you know. So when I look at things, I see all the colors and that's the way I paint. So when the layers combine on the canvas, they, they will make the darker color, you know. But I just lost all interest in representing um, anything kind of muddy or icky or ruined by capitalism, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. let's, okay, let's focus now on, you know, the world that that I think we could actually live in, which is like a really more beautiful one. It is for sure. But you still do still have a little bit of that kind of satire in there, just as far as making a comment about a thing that's wrong. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. I don't think you'd get away from that. <laughs> no, that's my punk rock core. It's like, I will sneak, <laughs> I will sneak a beheading into a really beautiful painting just to see if anyone's looking, you know? So because, because you do have that sort of kind of social commentary weaved in, do current events and, and things like what's going on in the last few years and in our political climate, does that tend to have an immediate impact on what you're working on or, or does that kind of weave in later? You know, it always, it always absolutely does. Like this show, I thought of the title, the show I'm working on now, you know, over a year ago, year and a half ago, and then the sequence of events happen, you know, it's like the pandemic happens. Um, the California fires of which I was evacuated during one of them happened. Um, you know, the Trump, the insurrection, you know, like a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, the climate crisis, it's getting worse. The fires are part of that. Um, so yeah, they always definitely have an immediate effect and I kind of have to figure out how to represent that in the work, you know, um, how, how to represent that without just illustrating it is, is always the hard part. And I start with a lot of writing. Um, and I, I do use a language of symbols. So I'll kind of write and think like what symbols would work for this concept or, uh, what, you know, what kind of animals or plants or environments do I want to have for this? Um, so the show I'm working on now, um, I specifically, wanted to do paintings about the ocean because I my mom lives right on the ocean. I'm actually staring at the ocean right now. (laughs) And uh, it has such a symbolic presence in my life. Um, But I didn't know exactly. I didn't know exactly how. So it was like a problem for a while. Like, God, how am I going to make these ocean paintings? Like I'm not really a landscape painter and people like my figures and how am I going to do this? You know? And then, um, this fire happened last summer. Um, it was pretty quick and it took out the whole, t- um, well, maybe like half the town of happy camp, which is up here in Northern California. Um, and all these fires broke out at the same time. So there were no firefighters available to us up here. So we were evacuated and there was what came to my mom's house on the ocean. And there was, you know, this one day where we didn't know if our entire town was going to be burned up because of just how the wind was going to shift. We didn't know. Um, so me and my husband thought like, okay, well we could, 
that could have been the last time we saw our house. And I have like a lot of archives and work that's not really replaceable that's in the house, you know? So we came down here and we were like, you know, kind of in shock and didn't know what to do. Uh, So we walked along the ocean and the sky was like a really strange color because of all the smoke. So, uh, it made the ocean look really strange, but also beautiful. Like the reflection of the orange sun on the water, the reflections were like this, looked like red glitter. It was like such a specific, cool color. And and I started looking around at, you know, there's like tide pools up here and a lot of creatures. And I was like, oh, I haven't seen that starfish before. And then there's like <laughs> a seagull walking by with like a crab claw in his mouth. And it was this contrast instantly of like fire and water, these two opposing elements, um, fire being in some ways cleansing, but the water being in some ways a vessel for our emotions. And I started to view the ocean because not only does it, was it reflecting the sky, but also containing the lives of all these creatures that were thriving in it. But it also contains, I was thinking like, Maybe the ocean's salty because it contains all of the sadness of all of the history of all the creatures that have ever lived. And that's why it's salty, you know. But this contrast of being enchanted by it and by its power and by the power of fire at the same time as being sort of despondent over maybe losing really what would be irreplaceable. You know, Uh, people are always like, you can build back, but. I don't really believe that. Like yeah, <laughs> things no. are lost forever. So luckily, just by a lucky shift of the wind, um, the fire went in another direction, went north, um, and we were spared. You know, but the, that event sort of formed how this show looks. That's incredible. And so, yeah, you, you mentioned it. So let's let's dive into that a little bit. You see your, your new show opens on June 5th, Obsidian Butterfly at KP Projects, which June 5th, it looks like it's going to be the Saturday after this show comes out. So perfect timing. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I know. That's, that's pretty awesome. And so you talked a little bit about the, the impetus or how you kind of formed the idea for it. Um, so I guess what is that specific story that you're trying to tell with this body of work? So the show is called Obsidian Butterfly, and the title is taken from... Um, the poet and writer Octavio Paz, uh, I don't know if you know him. He's amazing. Um, the way he writes is like the way my mind works, which I find so great. Like we would have been good friends, you know, Uh, Mexico city writer. Uh, he died. He looked pretty old. I think he died in like the eighties. Um, but anyway, um, but I love that title. I love the contrast of, uh, Obsidian, which is this black hardened glass made in the heart of a volcano. And then a butterfly, which is this like light ethereal being of the air, right? Um, also the, you know, the black. So, you know, but I thought, oh God, okay. I love this idea of these contrasting emotions happening at the same time. Um, so I was kind of vibing on that and thinking about that for quite a while before I even started the paintings. Um, And then weirdly, like about a month ago, I was kind of researching the, um, I was researching Obsidian Butterfly. I was like, I just want to see if it was anything else. Like, oh, was it a band ever? Because it sounds like a good band name, you know? And it turns out, oh, okay, he got that. Paws got that from, um, it was like an Aztec 
uh, warrior goddess that she she kind of like they couldn't because of the translation it was like she either had bat wings or just like black butterfly wings and she had these like talons made of obsidian like obsidian swords for talons and then like a skull face and she lived in like the original garden of paradise but she was the spirit warrior for um women that had died in childbirth or lost their children in childbirth and i was like oh that is so heavy and insane wow, yeah <laughs> and i tried to draw this goddess and like i had to put all these drawings in a drawer because they were too terrifying um but what i liked about the original concept was this opposing holding two thoughts at the same time right so for me, it was that moment at the ocean having the thought of loss, um, which is also a collective loss of like climate change, a collective loss of the Trump years and that loss of freedom or feeling an impending fascism coming. Um, but also being able to be in a moment of beauty of like, okay, well, there this natural world where I'm right now, there's beauty. I need to see it and acknowledge it because this is this is my moment I live right now. So I was really holding those two thoughts at the same time. So I was like, okay, can I make paintings that hold those two thoughts at the same time? So that's what I've been trying to do. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I like, I said that earlier, I love how you kind of take these universally understood kind of feelings and motifs, but mix them with your kind of personal experience and stories. Um, I really enjoy that. Um, and, and so, you know, from what I understand, another kind of personal aspect of this show is that that the the frames that you're using was actually crafted from your mother's collection of driftwood. So tell me about that. How did, how does, how did that come to happen? Yeah, this is so cool because she's been kind of collaborating with me on this. Um, so after after the fires up here, I, I wanted, I, I've always loved the look of, of burnt wood and um, the, in Japan, there's a technique where they burn the wood. It's called uh, ofuri or something like that, where they burn cedar and then they put it on their houses and it's like fireproof, you know? So I was kind of like had this burned wood idea for a while, but then the fires happened and we drove through some of it. And it was just all these stands of these like black trees, you know? And I thought, gosh, that would be a great way rather than painting fire, which is too obvious would be to use some of these burnt, trees from the forest to to frame the paintings well first of all i'm not like good with the chainsaw and my husband was like you know that's gonna be you gotta like cut them down to size and then you gotta cure the wood and like you're not gonna have time and, and also burnt wood is fragile i was like yeah you're right i hate that you're right but you're right um <laughs> you know so but i you know i visit my mom like once a week and she has a huge collection of driftwood because she um, she does sculpture and she does uh, these cool driftwood sculptures. And she collects, she's like a beachcomber. She collects like bones and all kinds of cool things, bone shells, driftwood. So I was looking at some of this and I was like, God, oh, that looks, that kind of looks a lot like a burnt wood. Like if you, if you painted it black, I wonder if it would look like a charred piece of wood. So I was like, mom, can I have, you know, can I buy some of these from you or are you some? And she's like, oh God, like, she's like, I have so much of it. Just take, you know. <laughs> so she started helping me. We, we painted a few of them black and it was like, they looked so, they looked so beautiful and they looked like burnt wood. But the cool part was that they had all this weathering from the ocean 
So the ocean had kind of a part in the forming of the pieces, you know what I mean? Which is such a cool idea. And also because they weren't really lit on fire, they're stable, like they're not crumbling or anything like that. So before we knew it, I was coming over here, you know, like once a week and we're like painting all this, all this um, driftwood. And, and every time we'd paint one in black, it'd be like, wow, like it really brought out the shape of the piece. And uh, so before we knew it, we just painted like hundreds of pieces black and had them all like lined up. So she and but I realized like, okay, I have to bring all these up and have them with the paintings and kind of set and place them. I can't just make them separate. So we brought them all up to my house and I'd been um, placing all the pieces. Um, But it got it feels like a weird, like holy practice to take this like like where do this because you can tell by the feel like oh this one is redwood because this is really light this one is obviously manzanita because of the shape this one is cedar um because it's straight you know uh so it was like each one had a story like oh my god like what forest did you come from how long were you in the ocean how old are you you know how ancient is this piece i don't even have any idea so they became part of the language of the paintings as like a found object kind of thing, you oh, know, wow. without me having to do all that work that she's been doing for years, but also like a really cool collaboration with her who she's also still a working artist, you know? No, I love that. And I love how it, it brings that ocean element that you, you said was sort of the impetus for it back into play because they, they, like you said, were involved and responsible for the forming of those pieces to begin with. So exactly, exactly. And a lot of cool. Yeah. And a lot of the wood that falls into the ocean that comes from the rivers is from forest fires and the, you know, the trees Mm -hmm. die and they fall down. And uh, I live right on the river, a wild and scenic river that it doesn't have any dams on it. So when there's a big storm, you see these huge logs float, you know, like rushing by, like a hundred foot huge log <laughs> rushing by, and they all end up in the ocean. And because of the way the tides and the coves up here, there's certain areas where they all wash up all the driftwood, you know. Oh wow, that's incredible! So I believe there's 22 pieces, uh, or will be, and and nine of those are in panel, 13 on paper. So are are the pieces on panel? Are those large works, small? Are they kind of a range of sizes? Yeah, now there's 13 on panel and like oh, okay. <laughs> 20 or more on paper. Uh, you know, large is a, a relative word. What I, what other people think is a large painting, I'm like, that's not that big. <laughs> but uh, so th- probably for other people, they're fairly large paintings. Um, like the biggest one is, um, I think it's like, well, I guess it's more of a mean. It's like four feet by like five and a half feet. Yeah, so they're not the largest pieces of it I've ever done, um, but they're mostly of a large and medium size. And then the works on paper, um, just I'm not very good at painting super teeny. So that's why when I do smaller work, it works on paper because I'm much better with ink and a tiny brush on paper to do something small. Okay, so those ones on paper, those aren't acrylic or are they watercolor? What what are you using for the paper ones? Yeah, they're uh, ink and watercolor. Okay. Those. Or graphite. Um, I do include some of my like working sketches in shows. Just I always think that's interesting. So there's some of that kind of thing too. I mean, I'll generate like hundreds of working <laughs> sketches. It's a little crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there a particular piece in the show that that challenged you maybe more than some of the others? 
Oh my God. This is okay. So I'm going to talk about my love hate relationship with painting because <laughs> I would say a lot of times I hate painting because I feel like I don't know how to paint sometimes. Um, so the thing about this series of work is I had, I kind of had to entirely change the palette. Um, to do ocean paintings, I, I wanted to do a much lighter, um, a lighter palette. And I've been working these kind of dark greens and blues for a long time. So I use an additive process where I use a lot of um, transparent glazes and they get darker over time. You can't really glaze and make it lighter. You can, but then you're adding white and you don't have the luminosity you have with the transparent glazes. Um, so to have, to keep a background like a light yellow, I, I realized like I can't, you can't really glaze a lot, like, you know, I, I can't, or it just gets darker and yellow is very particular. You can really ruin it and get it muddy pretty quickly, even with the addition of like a little bit of red or orange. So to keep it really pure, you have to be very careful with. So these, like all of these paintings have been so frustrating because I feel like I've been kind of relearning how to paint in a different way and like more of a, I don't know, like a blendy painter, you know, where I've never been, I've always been more like kind of concerned with line. And that comes from like animation, cartooning that outline and kind in Japanese, like, like painting where you're just focusing on the line and glazes. So this is much more of like how an oil painter might blend because like I've been painting shells and shells are like, if you look at an abalone shell, okay. It has all the colors. Yeah in it in all the places and there's like no edges <laughs> it's, it's all roundy and twisty so it's been a, a process of trying to figure out how to make this work look the way i want it to look without having that skill set like you know like mark ryden could make you know he could blend all this stuff yeah and i'm not you know it's like i'm not that good of a blendy painter so it takes me a long time, you know, but it's been, I love like one of the first ones I started, which was the biggest one is called Obsidian Butterfly. Um, that right out of the gate, because I, I had the right color background on it, because sometimes I'll just put a bunch of colors on panels just to get them started. But I didn't do that many with yellow backgrounds. And that one started out with, yeah, and that one just, that one worked from the get go. It was like the one I'm working on right now. I may have ruined, it might have been good like, you know, a week ago when I thought it was underdone. And then now it's like, oh, I shouldn't have put that orange there. So I guess I say I hate painting sometimes because, you know, it's, I, I get so obsessive that like, I will you know, close my eyes at night and I'm still painting. I'm like mm -hmm. doing all, I'm, you know, trying to redo the color in my mind. And then the first thing in the morning I get go out there and I'm like, yeah, that orange is terrible. Like, let's fix that. <laughs> So it's really just this long, elaborate process of not embarrassing myself in public. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So I'm curious, like how a piece, uh, I guess, evolves for you, because it does sound like you, you sort of work on several all at once um, and then kind of take them by, by layers. Um, so I guess how much does a piece evolve from what you originally imagined it, it would be? Oh, this is such a great question. Because my favorite, as I was saying, the part I hate about painting, but my favorite part about painting is the part I'm in now where they get to a point um, where I've evolved them enough to where I'm able to kind of 
and this is like, you know, some esoteric stuff, but by the act of, of painting, I kind of get myself into a trance state and music has a lot to do with it. Like I'm listening to a lot of um, Ravi Shankar ragas right now that just endlessly loop, but I get myself into a trance state and then I, um, there's something else that comes in and there's something else that comes in and kind of helps me out a little bit. Like I'm not really, um, there is a point where it's like, okay, these are taking on a life of their own. And that's where they're like, they come alive, like Frankenstein's <laughs> monster, you know, because there's another element. And this is why I don't do like super detailed color pre-studies because I never really know what they're going to look like in the end because things come in, elements come in and like literally it could be from like, yeah, something I saw today or, oh, I put this thing over by it and then that informed it or something like the elements come in for, and then things come in from the universe. Like, oh, I didn't know I had this color. Like what? I didn't, I've never made this color before. And they just start to, they just start to become alive, you know? And it's the, the bittersweet part is right when that's happening is right when I'm kind of finishing them all up. And then they all go to the gallery and I never see them again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's so it's awful. heartbreaking. It is. It really is. We're running a little low on time, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the Dr. DK project, um, just because I know that that's something that's, that's at least in the beginning of that series, um, it, it is imagined to be something bigger than just the one book that you came out with. I know you, yes. you had originally planned that to be a trilogy. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I guess, do you... The, the new kind of aspect here is that you were also doing writing. You know, you, some of the other book projects that you did, you were just illustrating other people's writing, but this was one where you were actually doing the fairy tale writing yourself. So, so do you enjoy writing? Is that something you find fulfilling? I love, thank you for this question also. I love writing. I write all the time. It's how I start the paintings is really writing out concepts. Um but I've always written little stories ever since I was a kid, you know, and I've, you know, or I did little zines and then, you know, like for Blab, I did a couple like short stories for that. Um, but it was really the frustration doing Cinderella that kind of led me to doing this book. There's a couple aspects. Um, Cinderella uh, is problematic for me because it's a princess story written by a man. And I just have a problem with like, every problem is fixed once she like gets married while she's still young, you know, like it's just, yeah. it doesn't really resonate with me, but that they wanted me to do that story. And I did that. That was work for hire. So it was like, okay, well I have to do this. But, um, but after that, I was thinking about who has written fairy tales and, you know, because of the time they were written, they were written by men or written down by men. Obviously the Grimm brothers, um, took oral fairy tales, folk tales, and then wrote them down. But women did not have the privilege of being able to have writing careers back in the day. So most fairy tales we know of now are are written by have been written by men. So I, I just was it was just bothering me. Cinderella was really bothering me, and I thought. You know, because I, I have the books on my shelf, so there's my name and the author's name. And uh, I thought, you know what? I want to, because I thought, you know, how many women have written their own book and illustrated it throughout history? Probably not that many. 
like Beatrix Potter is maybe the only example I can think of before this century. Like now, sure. But back in the day. Um, so I thought, you know what? That would be cool to write my own fairy tale book and illustrate it someday. So that was just a thought that was like in my head that I knew I was going to do someday. The other part was, you know, I still, I, I still want to do animation. Like that's a lifelong dream. And I know it's easier to do a project um, if the book is already there with the story and the characters are already designed. So I, I wrote the original Dr. Decay really as a treatment for stop motion animation. But the more I thought about it, it was like, oh, well, it would be good to design the characters. So then once I did that, it was like, well, maybe I should just write this little chapter. <laughs> and then it just kind of expanded into a book. I loved working on that project. Um, I do plan to do two more, but, um, it was kind of exhausting because that was not work for hire. That was just like a labor of love. So I had to kind of fit that between all the other work and shows I was doing, you know, sure. um, and that I will probably have to do that for the next two because there's literally only one publisher <laughs> interested in that book, which is Long Gone John of Sym Sympathy Records. And, uh, he, he, you know, he published that book. He's published his books now, but He's, you know, he loves books as much as I do. So it's been great to collab with him on that. That's amazing. And and I, I love how much depth. And again, we were talking about this earlier, just in your work in particular, you put so much thought into building out like entire worlds and entire characters, backstories, and even for your paintings, not, e not even just for the book works. Um, I guess you mentioned the stop motion animation and that being your kind of ultimate goal here. Is that still being worked on? Is that something you still plan to, to do? So the problem with, I work with a brilliant stop motion animator, Martin Mounier. He, he lives in Los Angeles and he worked on Coraline. He's, he's worked with Henry Selleck. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal artist. Um, but it's a very expensive process. So I just basically, I can't really afford to push it forward. I would need someone else to invest in it or to make that happen. Um, so that, that's a little bit on hold right now. I, I had some seed money I put into um, kind of developing. There's so much there's so much um, pre-production with stop motion because you're building everything in miniature, which is so fun, you know. Yeah. But it's like, okay, we're not ready to shoot yet because we're, we're researching what kind of hair we can get to make the little dolly. You know, like everything is like, oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot done in in um pre-production but i just don't have the money to push it forward so that's kind of why it stopped but um it, it's something i would like to leave behind you know after i'm gone i think that it just like stop motion and animation in general it has such resonance for me and it had such resonance for me as a child i would like to kind of continue that forward you know Awesome. So all the deep pocket investors, uh, contact Camille. Cause she <laughs> oh, yeah, you want to make my weird unmarketable projects, you know who to call. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, Camille, um, I guess where can people find you online? Oh, I'm on Instagram. It's at CRG studios or my website, which is CamilleRoseGarcia.com. Um, those are probably the two best places. Um, there's a couple of YouTube things I should load up more, but you know, it's just who has the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Awesome. So last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Oh, I, I got prepared for this one. <laughs> uh, 
I actually have two, and it's a nod to my brilliant, creative uh, Canadian brothers in the north. Nice. Um, Ryan Heshka is one of my favorite painters of all time. Um, and I would love to hear about his process. Um, and Marcel de Zama, who is also Canadian and another one of my favorite artists of all time. So, yeah, it would be so cool to hear from them. Awesome. Very cool. Great choices. Well, uh, Camille, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. This has been an absolute treat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was really, really a pleasure. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Camille. That was really a lot of fun. And even though this is one of my, you know, longer episodes, uh, I still didn't even manage to, you know, dive into everything that I prepared to talk to her about. So, you know, maybe we'll have a part two someday. One thing that we really only just scratched the surface of is the Dr. Decay Project and her venture into writing her own fairy tales. After having illustrated, you know, several of them in the past, she finally got a chance to write her own. That book and the story around it is so rich and has so much depth. It'll be fun to see where she goes with it. But like I mentioned to her a couple times, it's not just the book project that's really demonstrated her skills at at weaving an imaginative tale and a super deep story. Her painted works do that too, and the story around each of her solo exhibitions, they all have the same kind of depth and richness to them. I absolutely love her ability to flesh out a world and create characters to tell these stories that that are both meaningful and personal to her, but also carry with it a universal message and a critique. It'd be so cool if she was able to eventually complete the production of the stop-motion animation. With her love of both fairy tales and animation, I have to imagine it would be an incredibly special thing to her to have it see the light of day. I'm really excited about her new solo show. Titled Obsidian Butterfly, the exhibition will open at KP Projects on the Saturday after this show should be debuting, June 5th. And it sounds like it's even grown in size to include 13 works on panel and more than 20 on paper. I love the fact that this body of work was born out of of such a personal but also harrowing experience, you know, fleeing the California wildfire. And if not for the changing of the winds, could have been far more tragic for her. It's also really cool what she's doing with the framing. Being able to collaborate with her mother, her first real art teacher, to build out these frames. And doing that in such a way that, you know, further fleshes out the themes that the works are focused on. Sounds like a pretty incredible body of work. Uh, Be sure to reach out to the gallery to get a preview of the work and details about the opening. So thanks again to Camille for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's new Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com artaffairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time... Be good to yourself, and be good to each other.